2 billion people are on Facebook. And if Facebook continues to be the dominant social network for the next 10 or 20 years, eventually you're going to have more dead people on Facebook than alive people. When you post something online, you're probably not thinking, what will happen to this post when I die? I'm sure it's not something you really want to think about either. But as we start spending more of our lives online, you don't really have a choice. There will be traces of me online when I pass away. And the question is, do you want to be deleted? Do you want those traces to be online? Planning for the end of life is confronting, and writing a will to divide your physical assets is hard enough, let alone your digital ones. Digital assets, you know, in some cases are just as important as as kind of traditional assets, and if not financially, at least socially, emotionally, and we need to work out how to kind of plan for this. Today on the show, we're looking at death in the digital age and how a life online has reshaped the way we mourn, remember, and in many ways, brought us closer to it. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Jake Morecambe. As we've moved into the digital age, we're seeing people's online lives carry on well after they've passed away. James Meese, co-author of Death and Digital Media, says this has been an incredibly rude awakening, and perhaps clearest on Facebook. In the early days, there was real issues with how social media platforms were dealing with the accounts of people who passed. You have notifications, birthday notifications. You might have friends in suggested events. The more dramatic ones were where Facebook did um, memories and, like, year flashbacks. And you've got photos of friends who might have passed or family who might have passed, which was quite affecting for some people. Um, Someone actually developed a kind of, I guess, project around this called Inadvertent Algorithmic Cruelty, where a random algorithm kind of brings back all these memories and you're like, oh, didn't really want to think about, you know, my family member who passed and the algorithm saying, wasn't 2017 such a great year? And you're like, not, not so much. Dead users on Facebook, or reminders of death, James says was inevitable. But he also believes that platforms have to take this seriously. You need to have processes in place to take care of the majority of your population who are dead. Facebook do have options as to what you can do with someone's profile after they die. The main one being you can memorialise it. James explains this essentially freezes a profile in time. The idea being that this is, this is the kind of representation of a person who's since passed. You don't necessarily want someone who's not that person curating a particular vision of what this person was in, in their life. Facebook also offers what's called a legacy contact. You can go into your profile settings and you can actually elect someone else who's on Facebook to become a legacy contact to take care of your profile after you pass away. This is Megan Yip. Megan is a lawyer in California and an expert on digital assets and death. She explains a legacy contact to a certain degree can curate someone's profile. They can pin a post to the top of the page 
they can delete posts, and even change the profile picture. But there are things they can't do. They can't actually log into the account or read any private messages. Why might someone want to keep a, a family member or a friend's Facebook page active even after they've passed away? I think that's a good question that definitely changes by family and culture. But I think what we have found is that the more a person's social life and relationships are online, uh, maybe people in a certain interest group or people who you aren't in physical proximity to, Facebook presents the place for those people to mourn and remember you and your contributions to this community. Because it doesn't seem too far removed from, you know, maybe going to a cemetery and visiting a family member who's passed and they might have something like a tombstone. This is kind of just happening online, right? Correct. Yeah. And I think that's really a good way of framing it. And particularly, um, not exclusively, but I think a lot of the more prominent examples of this, particularly in the early years, were around young people who passed who might have had quite sudden or, or tragic deaths. And as a result, the demographic of people going back there were friends who were more comfortable on social media. These are young people who may not necessarily want to go to a gravesite or that might not be part of their mourning practice, but they're going to where potentially they spend a lot of their time interacting with this this person, which was online. James says what's curious is how we're speaking to the dead is starting to change. People often speak directly to that person online. Um, There's obviously some remembrance, like people say, oh, remember when we did that, remember when we did that. But there's kind of examples of people speaking in quite a present tense and talking to the deceased, like, um, hey, how's it going? I hope you're going well. Thinking of you, you know, sending love wherever you are. Obviously recognising that they're dead, but there's kind of a presentness to that conversation. Part of that is related to the kind of informal space of of social media, right? So you go to a grave, it's a cemetery. There's thousands and thousands of years of ritual and tradition about how we behave and operate. It's a much different thing to be on your mobile phone, potentially in front of the TV, thinking of your deceased friend or family member and then leaving a comment on their page. That lack of formality, I think, changes, and not in a bad way, it's just different. It changes how we interact with the deceased and how we mourn as a result. How healthy do you see that being? Well, I mean, it could be good or bad depending on on circumstances, right? Like, it could be a really good way for someone to get over the death of someone. It could be a terrible way for someone to get over the the death of someone. I don't think... You can say that social media is good or bad in this case. It's just a phenomenon. Because it might be healing for some. It might. Right, exactly. Exactly. It could be healing. It could be harmful. A lot of that, I suspect, has more to do with human psychology and personal relationships rather than the, the method in which they're, they're interacting with these memories. That being said, some may not want this at all and would rather have all traces of their online lives erased when they die. This was the case with one of James's friends. Prior to his death, there was a clear strategy in place to sort out his social media before he passed. Right, so they were aware that they were passing or in... Yeah, they were aware they were passing, which meant that plans could be put in place. 
Writing a plan for what happens to your digital assets, or as more are starting to call it, writing a digital will, is something Megan believes not nearly enough people are thinking about. What exactly are digital assets? Well, that is something that not everyone's decided on. I think that at its broadest form, they say it is anything that is an electronic record. I like to maybe narrow that a little bit more and say that it's anything in your computer. I think for most people, their most precious digital assets are their photos. For artists or musicians, it could be files that represent things they create. For a lot of people, they are creating blogs, they're drafting books and stories, and they save that all in cloud storage now. So anything that you create and save somewhere, either privately or something you share somewhere, maybe you write a blog post and post it publicly, I think of that as a digital asset. Megan says while people are smart when it comes to storing and saving their digital assets, they don't typically think about enabling people access to them if they were to die. If you were to get me to think about what digital assets I use and how I might hand them over when I die, what, what would you be telling me? I think the questions actually start around why are you using these things and what is the value to you and your colleagues, family members in your kind of long-term life plan thinking? What is your intentional use of these pieces of technology? And to the extent that someone, you know, uses cloud storage maybe to be very productive with a group of colleagues, it might be really important to talk about how their colleagues access or continue to access what is in that cloud storage. Too often, Megan sees colleagues, friends, and family members locked out of these digital assets because there was no plan in place. It does get quite messy because most people don't have any plans written out or any direction. She argues a list of usernames and passwords stored away somewhere doesn't qualify as a plan. I just think a list of accounts and passwords is not enough because it doesn't have notations about what you own or what's in that account or even what you wish. I think you should have a list at the very least marked, which should just be immediately deleted and people don't have to care about. It's also dangerous to just leave that information lying around. I think a password is too great a temptation. I see a lot of people transferring accounts with the password instead of contacting an institution. We definitely see an uptick in elder financial abuse here in California related to family members just accessing you know, grandmother, great aunties funds by logging on online without them realizing, you know, um, what I always say is you don't even have to try to forge a check anymore. You know, if you want to steal an elder relative's money, you just create an online account or, you know, look for their password. That's usually in a notebook or in some cases, unfortunately, people are just putting their passwords on their screen or on their keyboard. (laughs) Or there's like an automated login to a mobile banking app. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And so I think that right now a lot of things are happening ad hoc and they are getting messy. Writing up a digital will that outlines your digital assets, what you want to happen to them, and who should have access might sound simple enough. 
but Megan says it becomes a more complicated conversation when you consider what of those assets you actually own. A lot of us have access to databases of personal information that belong to our employer. A lot of us have access to things that maybe we didn't create. That's not ours to share post-death or otherwise. And so I think along with the value and how I use it and who needs to know about it is also making sure if we're making that list of things, we're talking about who actually owns it too. James Meese adds this may include digital assets that, on the surface, seem unimportant. So this might be things like your streaming service or things you bought of iTunes or your Kindle. That's often given to us by contract. And we own the rights to access, but we don't actually own the physical good. That's a real interesting change, I think, from previous generations. That We might have handed over like a treasured CD or a treasured book. That is becoming increasingly difficult to do. And that's because, you know, legally, we actually don't own them. It takes away that tangible ability to mourn. Yeah, I mean, in a way, yeah. What digital technology gives us is instant access, ease of access, often at a cheaper price. What we lose is the ability to, to, to kind of take it with us. How much of someone's digital life gets lost in the ether? Because if I'm thinking about, you know, when I pass away, and hopefully that's not for a long time, but in terms of what my online daily life is like, my email inbox will continue to fill up. My notifications will continue to rise. There's an eeriness to that. I think that the answer to that is inactivity policy. An inactivity policy is where a platform shuts down your account because you're not using it. These policies aren't a requirement, but Megan says they could be a useful tool to reduce the growing number of dead user profiles. Most companies do say if you don't log in for so many days or months, usually, that they will close your account to kind of save their own storage. But I always say that that's where the graveyards are, is the inactivity policies. What will be passed on and what will fade away is something James has started considering for himself. What's going to happen to my emails on my email account? What's going to happen to my Instagram account? What's going to happen to my Steam account and all the games that I play? Particular sources of income, even if that's in-game income, right? Like, where does that go? It's ultimately a personal decision whether you want your account to be deleted, you want it to be memorialized. It's your decision whether you want to transfer your in-game currency to a very good friend who you play with weekly or to just let that go off into the ether. Do you think this has desensitized us to death or it's bringing us closer to it? I think it's really bringing us closer to it. It is really funny in a way. Like, you go to the funeral and if you're particularly loyal or if you had a particular affinity to this person, you might visit the grave once a year. That annual visitation is still common online. But I think what online does is it just places that person within your orbit. It sounds a bit silly, but you don't have to get in the car. You don't have to go drive to a gravesite, which is increasingly on the outer edges of, of the metro spaces, at least in Australia. Instead, your, your deceased friend or family member is, is within reach. And that might not even be posting something. 
even just a simple act of being able to look at photos, right, on a set of Facebook posts or on an Instagram profile or something along those lines, all of those are kind of acts of connection with the dead that were not uncommon in previous generations. We would look through a photo album or something like that. But I suppose potentially the joy of this is that you get to interact with someone's, I guess, see them how they want it to be seen and potentially access more content about that person if it's still available, if it's still being made available. Bringing us closer to death is something the funeral industry is doing as well through live streaming. I think it's actually really important because if you think about the lives of people today, um, more and more people live internationally in multiple countries. Uh, More and more people don't necessarily have a job in their hometown. So when someone passes, it's entirely possible that some of the people that want to be at that funeral can't be there. So they live stream it. It's an interesting process because, you know, funerals are still quite traditional businesses. Um, The industry is relatively, um, I guess, conservative, I think, for good reason. So the, the tech is taken up haphazardly and maybe somewhat reluctantly, but there have been some parlors, some kind of companies which have taken it on board and said, look, you know, we can live stream this for you. Right, really. So provided in, in the service itself. Yeah, yeah. Like as a box you can tick. You have professional videographers kind of setting that up or in some cases funeral parlors actually inbuilt in a parlor is the capacity to film and then potentially live stream. But, you know, it's worth noting that this isn't like on Twitch or something. This is, you know, a very specific stream for people who are close to the deceased who want to see it. So this isn't, we're not talking about getting out a mobile phone and just streaming a funeral. It's a clear service that's provided within the ambit of of particular funeral companies. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.